Paul is writing this letter to a church full of people who had only been believers for a few months and to whom Paul had only been able to teach for a few weeks. But it's clear that one of the things that Paul emphasized and emphasized and emphasized in the short time he was with them was the return of Jesus Christ. In chapter 1 and verses 9 and 10, he describes them this way. He says, You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven. In the past, the word that described them was they turned. In the present, the word that described them was they served. And in the future, the word that described them was they were waiting. Their hope was fixed on the return of Jesus Christ. In fact, they believed that it could happen any day. They were so sure that Jesus was coming back that some of them had actually dropped their responsibilities and were just looking up. And so Paul had to write to them in chapter 4 and verse 11 and say, while you're waiting, get a job. You see, the church at Thessalonica was focused on the return of Jesus Christ. But something had happened that disturbed that hope. Some of the believers in Thessalonica have died. And so they have had to bury some church members. Maybe they died from natural causes. Maybe they died as a result of the persecution we read about in chapter 2 and verse 14. Whatever the reason, it raised some questions about what happens to them. Since they have died, are they going to miss out when the Lord returns? And so Paul writes verses 13 to 18 to address that issue. Notice verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Now Paul is writing this to people who are grieving at the graves of loved ones and friends. And the purpose is to comfort them. The purpose is to change the way they feel. And how do you change the way someone feels? Well, by changing the way they think. Paul says if these believers remain uninformed, they will grieve like those who have no hope. And so he intends to inform them and us about something very important here. Now, if you notice verse 13, Paul refers to those who have died as those who are asleep. He refers to them that way in verse 13, again in verse 14, and again in verse 15. Now, why does he use the word sleep? Why doesn't he just say they're dead? Well, because sleep is a fitting metaphor for what death is for the believer. What's sleep like? Some of you are trying to find out. Sleep is comfortable, it's restful. It's relaxing. Sounds good, doesn't it? In fact, when you're really tired, sleep is something you look forward to. And Paul is saying death for the believer is the very same way. Because as he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he has pulled the sting out of death. And sleep is also temporary. You sleep six, seven, eight, nine. Ten hours, and what happens? You wake up. And it's the same way with death. We go into death, but it's temporary because we will awaken one day in resurrection. 
When my wife falls asleep, I don't shake her out of it. I don't call 911 because I know she's resting and I know she'll wake up. And throughout the New Testament, the death of believers is described as sleep because it's comfortable and it's temporary. In fact, the word cemetery was originated by the early Christians. They didn't like the term graveyard. So they substituted cemetery, a word that means sleeping place. The contemporary word that fits most accurately would be dormitory. We took our loved one and we put them in the dormitory because they're only sleeping until that day when they will awaken. Now some cults take this idea of sleep and they apply it to the soul. They teach what they call soul sleep. That when you die, your soul goes into the grave along with your body and it sleeps there. You stay in a condition of unconsciousness. Now, is that what Paul means when he says that they're asleep? Look at Acts chapter 7 with me. Acts chapter 7 describes the martyrdom of, of Stephen. And I want you to notice the last verse in Acts chapter 7. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. Now, what fell asleep? Did Stephen's soul fall asleep? No. Look at verse 59. He called upon the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. You see, his soul didn't fall asleep. His soul went into the presence of the Lord Jesus. And that's why in verse 55 we read that Jesus, who is normally seated in heaven, stood up on this occasion because he is receiving this faithful martyr. Look at Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. Jesus is standing over the body of Jairus' daughter. And in verse 52 it says... Now they were all weeping and lamenting for her, but he said, stop weeping, for she has not died, but is asleep. And they thought that was very funny. Verse 43, they began laughing, knowing that she had died. He, however, took her by the hand and called, saying, child, arise. And notice verse 55, and her spirit returned. Now, does it say her spirit woke up? No. It says her spirit returned. Why? Because her spirit had left. You see, that's what happens at death. The immaterial part of you leaves the material part of you. That is death. When Jesus spoke to the thief on the cross, what did he say? Today, you will go to sleep for 2,000 years. No. Today, you will be with me in paradise. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus talks about both a believer and an unbeliever that have died. Both of their bodies go into the grave, but they're both awake and conscious. Lazarus is being comforted in the bosom of Abraham, and the rich man is suffering in the torment of the flames of Hades. What did Paul say in 2 Corinthians 5.8? We prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be asleep in the grave. We desire rather to be absent from the body 
and to be at home with the Lord. In Philippians 1.23, Paul said, I have the desire to depart and to be with Christ, for that is very much better. You don't have to worry about being uh, laying around the graveyard until Jesus comes back. Because the moment you die, your spirit goes into the presence of the Lord Jesus, and your body sleeps until it is awakened in resurrection. Now look again at verse 13. And I want you to notice here what Paul does not say. Paul is not saying that if you're informed, you won't grieve. There's nothing wrong with grieving. It is a normal thing. It is a natural thing. God has made you with that capacity. It is like the emotional release valve when pain comes. When Jesus kneeled by the grave of his friend Lazarus in John chapter 11, what do we read about him? Jesus wept. And we know the same was true of Paul because he says in Philippians 2.27 that Epaphroditus had been sick and had almost died. And Paul says, if he had died, I would have sorrow upon sorrow. See, there's nothing wrong with grieving. There's nothing wrong with weeping. There's nothing wrong with sorrowing. And there's nothing admirable about being stoic. Stoic people don't have more faith. In fact, Paul tells us in Romans 12, 15, we are to weep with those who weep. We are commanded in Scripture to cry. And so as Paul writes here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he's not writing so we will not grieve at all. He's writing so we will not grieve like those who have no hope. So we will not grieve like those who are unbelievers. How do unbelievers grieve? Well, for them, death is a dead-end grief. There's no hope of reunion. There's no hope of a tomorrow. There's no hope of a future. They have to say goodbye for the last time. Christians don't grieve that way. Because Christians never have to say goodbye for the last time. I read this week about a little five-year-old girl who was watching her older brother die of a very painful disease. He was much older and she loved him a lot. And after he died and after the funeral was over, she came to her mother and she said, Mama, where did brother go? And her mother replied, well, he went to heaven to be with Jesus. And she said, oh, and it satisfied her little mind. And not long after that, she heard her mother having a conversation with a friend, and her mother was weeping and saying, I've lost my son, I've lost my son, I've lost my son. And later in the day, that little girl came to her mother, and she said, Mommy, is somebody lost when we know where they are? Well, the answer is no. You see, when we lay a Christian loved one in the grave, they are not lost. They are with the Lord. They are not dead. They are asleep. And we do not have to say goodbye. We can say, see you later. In this passage, Paul is going to give us two reasons why we do not have to grieve like those who have no hope. 
The first reason is the resurrection of Jesus. And the second reason is the revelation of Jesus. First reason is the resurrection of Jesus in verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Now the Thessalonian believers are saying, we know that Jesus is coming back, but what about those who are di- have died? Isn't that a big problem? And Paul says, death is not a barrier for God. To understand that, you simply have to go back to the basics of the gospel. What happened to Jesus? Jesus died, and Jesus rose again. And this is the ipso facto argument. If you believe that Jesus died and rose out of the grave, even so, that's the bridge, God will bring with him those who are in the grave today. That's not a problem for him. Our hope is founded on two historical facts. Jesus died and Jesus rose again. Now I want you to notice something in verse 14. Believers are said to be asleep, but it doesn't say that about Jesus. It says Jesus died. Why? Because he paid the wages for our sin. He was sacrificed in our place. He bore our sins in his body on the tray. Listen, Jesus died feeling the full fury of death in all its dimensions in order that he might turn death for us into sleep. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Jesus died so that we might not have to. And then the second fact is Jesus rose again. When Jesus rose from the dead, it indicated that the Father approved of his sacrifice. It indicates that the Father is satisfied. And because of that, his resurrection was not a solo act. In 1 Corinthians 15, 23, it says that Jesus rose as the first fruits of our resurrection. His resurrection guarantees our resurrection. In fact, in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 18, Jesus says, I was dead and I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death. Jesus opened the gates of death and came out, and guess what? He still got the keys. Why? Because he will open death for you and me as well. That's why he said it this way in John 14, 19. Because I live, you shall live also. And so the first reason that we don't have to grieve as those who have no hope is the resurrection of Jesus. In his death, he paid our debt. In his resurrection, he guaranteed our resurrection. And then there's a second reason, and that's the revelation of Jesus in verses 15 to 17. Notice verse 15. For this we say to you, by the word of the Lord, that. And what Paul goes on to describe in verses 15 to 17 is what we refer to as the rapture. Now, you won't find that word in this passage or any other passage in the New Testament. It's a word that comes from a Latin word for the phrase in verse 17, caught up. Paul is going to describe how Jesus Christ is going to come back and catch up his believers into the sky. That's a pretty radical idea. If you watch some of the baseball players when they accomplish certain feats, I saw one last night, uh, Wade Boggs got his 3,000th hit, and he's running around the bases, and he pointed to the sky. 
think it was last night. And they asked him, who were you pointing at? And he said, I was, I was pointing to my mom. Mark McGuire had hit a home run and pointed at the sky, and they asked him who he was pointing at, and he said he was pointing at Roger Maris. Now, if you listen to these guys, you get the idea that you've got your stadium full of people, and they're playing ball, and you've also got the sky full of old baseball players and moms watching the game as well. It's pretty interesting theology. Paul says, I want to tell you something. Jesus is going to come back and he's going to catch us all up in the air. And you say, that's pretty radical stuff, Paul. Where did you get that from? And so Paul wants to let us know this is not a figment of his imagination. This is not just wishful thinking on his side. Sometimes we see people crying. We want to tell them things that aren't necessarily true just to make them feel good. So Paul says, I'm going to tell you about this. But before I do, I want to preface it by saying this is the word of the Lord. This is divine revelation. Now, some commentators look at this and they say what Paul is doing here is he's, he's going back to the gospel accounts to something Jesus said while he was on earth, and he's just expounding on that. Well, that's not really what's happening here, because if you look back at the gospels, you will find there's nothing Jesus said that comes close to what Paul is saying here. In fact, I can only find one reference to what we call the rapture in the gospels. And that's in John chapter 14, where Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus said, I'm going, but I'm going to come back and get you. That's the only reference I can find in the Gospels. And Jesus didn't give us any specific details. Here Paul gives us specific details. You see, this is new revelation. In fact, Paul talks about this same event in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 and 52. And there he says this, We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. And before Paul says that, he prefaces it with this statement. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. Now what's a mystery? A mystery in Scripture is something that was not known before, but has now been revealed. You see, this is new revelation given to Paul. And what is it that the Lord revealed to Paul? Look at verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now, they're worried about those who have died, those who are in the grave, those who have fallen asleep. And Paul says, the first thing I want to tell you is that when Jesus comes back, those of us who are alive will not precede, will not get an advantage over those who are in the grave. They're not going to be left behind. In fact, they're not even going to be late. You say, well, how's that going to work? Well, he's going to explain that to us in verse 16. But before we look at that, I want to point out one other thing in verse 15. And that is, notice that Paul uses the personal pronoun when he says, we. We who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. What's that tell you? That tells you that Paul expected to be around when Jesus came back. In 1 Corinthians 15, 52, he expresses that same anticipation. He says, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable 
but I'm not in that group. I'm going to be in the group that's, we shall be changed. And so Paul anticipated that he would be alive when Jesus Christ came back. In fact, he says in Romans chapter 13 and verse 12 that the night is almost gone and the day is at hand. The dawn is breaking when he's coming back. But you know what else Paul said? 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14. God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Now there he uses the same personal pronoun, us, with the group that is in the grave. So now we find Paul saying, I'm going to be among those who are raised from the dead. In fact, if you read 2 Timothy 4, 6, and 7, Paul says, The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. He was obviously convinced at that point in time that he was going to die before Jesus came back. Now what's all that tell us? Well, it tells us that Paul had no idea when Jesus was coming back. And neither would do we. Paul said, at one time, I'm going to be with those who are caught up. I'm going to be alive when he comes back. The next minute, we find him saying, I'm convinced I'll be in the grave. In fact, he expresses that attitude in chapter 5 of our of 1 Thessalonians, verse 10. He says, Christ died for us that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Paul says, I don't know. I'll be awake, I'll be asleep, doesn't really matter. I'll be caught up to be alive with him. You see, the attitude we need is the attitude of Paul. Listen to what he said in Philippians 1.20. He said, With all boldness, Christ shall even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. You see, we as Christians are to live in the anticipation that Jesus may come back today. But we also realize that we may die before he does. And so the bottom line is that I want to use every moment to please and honor him. And Paul is saying in this verse, doesn't really matter which group you're in because the ones who are alive are not going to get an advantage over those who have already died. The ones who are alive are not going to get there extra early. How does that work? Look at verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Now notice, this is emphatic. He says, it's the Lord himself. He's not going to send Michael. He's not going to send Gabriel. He's not going to send anybody else. He's going to come himself. There was a wedding here yesterday, and Chris said, who gives this woman to be married to this man? And Dave Anderson said, her mother and I do. And I noticed that Joseph, the groom, didn't send one of his groomsmen to get her. He went and he got her himself. And that's true of the Lord Jesus as well. The groom is going to come to get his bride. And it says in this verse that he will descend from heaven. Why? Because that's where he is. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 says he has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. But on that glorious day, he will descend And I want you to notice something. There are three sounds that will accompany his coming. The first is a shout. Now, some people look at this verse and they're confused about who's going to shout. It seems very clear to me who's going to do the shouting. It's the Lord Jesus. In fact, he's the only one who can make this kind of shout because this is a shout that will raise the dead. 
He predicted he would make this shout in John chapter 5 and verse 25. He said, Truly I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear shall live. We got a foretaste of that in John chapter 11. You remember when Jesus stood by the tomb of Lazarus and he said, Lazarus, come forth. And you've heard people say if he didn't say Lazarus, the whole tomb would have emptied out. That's true. He said, Lazarus, come forth. In a future day, he will say to all of his own who have died, come forth. And so the first sound is the shout of the Lord Jesus. The second sound is the voice of the archangel. Now the word arch means first. And so this is the first angel. He is the angel who is apparently in charge of all the other angels. You know which angel that is? Jude 9 tells us it's Michael. And on this occasion, he apparently will call all the other angels together. Now that's very interesting, because if you read Jude 9, what is Michael doing? He's disputing with the devil over the body of Moses. Now why did God need the body of Moses? Well, because Moses was going to appear, you remember, on the Mount of Transfiguration. In a future day, when God raises the bodies of all of his own children... Michael will again be involved in that process. And so we have the voice of the archangel calling the angels together. And then there's a third sound, and that is the trumpet of God. Now you read about trumpets throughout the Old Testament. They're used for one primary purpose, and that is to call the people of God together. Whether that's for war or for worship or for celebration, this was an instrument used as a gathering call. And how fitting that the trumpet of God will sound at the greatest gathering of all in the future. So the Lord will descend with a shout. We will hear the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. And what's the first thing that will happen? Look at the end of verse 16. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Now see, the Thessalonian Christians are worried about those who are died, that they're, they're going to get left out. So Paul says, let me reassure you, the very first thing that's going to happen is that those who are asleep will rise. Why do they rise first? We're not told. Maybe it's because they've got six more feet to go. But he raises them first. And then verse 17 says, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. They are going to rise first, but notice they're not going to get there first. We are going to be caught up together. We're all going to get there at the same time. And where are we going? To meet the Lord. Now notice that. Our hope is not heaven. Yes, people, where are you going? They say, I'm going to heaven. But God never intended for heaven to be our hope. God intended for heaven to be the place where we enjoy our hope. You see, our blessed hope is who we're going to meet, not where we're going to meet him. In fact, you're going to meet him in the sky on a cloudy day. And it's fitting that clouds will be around on that day because clouds are always associated with divine appearances. God led Israel with a pillar of cloud. When God came down on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, there were clouds. When God came into the tabernacle, it was filled with a cloud. When God came into the temple, it was filled with a cloud. At the transfiguration, God spoke 
through a cloud. And when Jesus ascended, we're told that a cloud received him out of their sight. And when Jesus comes back, he will come back in the clouds. Now, you've probably flown through clouds and above clouds. I love to be above clouds and seeing the sunlight on clouds are so soft and billowy. They look very inviting, but I wouldn't recommend that you get out of the plane. But in that day, we will be caught up into the clouds. Now, how's that going to happen? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says that we will be changed. We will have glorified bodies like Jesus' body. You want to know what your body will be like? Just look at Jesus after the resurrection. He went through locked doors. He went through rooms. He, he ascended through the clouds. That's the kind of body you and I will have. In fact, in Revelation chapter 21, it describes the new Jerusalem that will come down during the millennium. And it says it's 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles. Now, where are you going to land a city like that? I don't think God's going to land it. I think it's going to be a satellite city hovering over the earth. And we're told that we will live there and we will work on the earth. Our work will be ruling with Christ. I was going to say, so you wake up in the morning, but there is no morning because it's day all the time in that city. So when you decide to go to work, how are you going to get to work? Well, you're just going to step out into the clouds and you're going to descend down to the earth. And when you're ready to go back, you'll just ascend up into the clouds and go back to that new Jerusalem. That's pretty exciting stuff. But you know what? That's not our hope. Our hope is not, you know, will I drive a Mercedes chariot or a Cadillac chariot or, or how big will be my mansion? Our hope is not on the place. Our hope is on the person. Paul is the only individual who ever went to the third heaven and came back. He calls it paradise. And he says, I saw things and I heard things that I cannot even put into words. But was that the hope of the Apostle Paul? Was his hope, I got to get back to that place? No. His hope is expressed at the end of verse 17 where he says, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Wherever He is, we will be, and that's all that matters. And then He says in verse 18, therefore comfort one another with these words. Paul doesn't say, take this knowledge of the rapture and make a chart. Take this knowledge of the rapture and argue about when it's going to happen. No. This is a message of comfort and hope and encouragement. Paul says, take this knowledge of the rapture and comfort one another. What do we need to do when we kneel by the grave of a Christian loved one? Look back to the resurrection of Jesus, knowing that his resurrection ensures theirs. And look forward to the revelation of Jesus, knowing that when he comes back, they will rise first. And then he'll take us up together to be with him forever. That's where we find our comfort.